We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello? We're on to Cincinnati. You play to win the game. It was all that Dan Marino's fault. Everyone knows that. When it's too tough for them... It's just right for us. The Rockpile Report, AFC East Roundup, hosted by Bill's season ticket holder, Drew Gear, a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. We're going to have an extensive professional relationship, my man. One thing I know about you is you have the ambition to be great. My job is to coach you to get all that greatness out of you. And it's going to be fun, man. It's going to be work, but I know you're not afraid of that. So um, this is is an awesome day for me. Um, And I'm damn sure going to make sure that when you look back on this day, you're going to be like, damn, that was one of the best days of my career, too. Okay? But I'll earn that from you. You got me? No, since you can't hear him, he's, there's a camera on us right now. Since you can't hear him, he's he's telling me how excited he is. And uh, that there's no other coach you'd rather play for in the entire world. Which I thought was nice since it, this is the first time I've really talked to him. <laughs> I'm elated, bro. It is, it is an unbelievable opportunity for me that I do not plan on wasting in the slightest. You can, I promise you that. Um... I'm all in. You're going to get the best um, out of me that you could possibly get. There's there's only one way to do anything great. So, um, and there's no shortcuts. But let's go do something that's worth doing. It's on, bro. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the AFC East Roundup Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Season Ticket Holder Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger. And we've called this emergency <laughs> edition of the AFC East Roundup to talk about the coaching staff shuffles around the division. I, Chris, here's a phrase you probably aren't used to hearing. The New York Jets have been the most stable team in the AFC East this offseason. I haven't heard of that in a while. I don't think I've heard that in my lifetime. No, they were stable when they had Kotite. <laughs> Chris, I'll raise a glass to that. God, see, you're more fun when you drink. I love this. (laughs) Being able to drink not having to work, Chris, might be the best, Chris. Yeah, I don't don't have to go back to work until Saturday, but... Hell yeah. 
Now, I know that it sounds crazy to think it's the New York Jets, but they're the only coaching staff in the division that didn't experience significant shift in personnel and by association the way that they do business. Now, last week during our podcast, we sat down with Nate Geary of WGR 550 and we got his thoughts on the departure of Brian Dable and the promotion of Ken Dorsey into the offensive coordinating position. And when we broke down all the ways that most of our fan base's hand-wringing is probably fairly overstated, and we discussed how any changes to the actual decision-making and play-calling might manifest itself, it's still going to be a change. And beyond that, since we recorded the show, we've also seen the Bills add an interesting new quarterbacks coach and a familiar face at offensive line coach. And yet, it's not like things are any different going on in our own backyard from what's going on around the rest of the division. How much different? I don't know. And how much better or worse off might our divisional opponents be than we are in this regard? That's what we're hoping to find out tonight as we sit down with some familiar faces from around the AFC East to look at their own off-season changes. And so we kick off the evening with probably one of the oldest friends of the Rockpile Report going back to our infancy, Mr. Mark Schofield of Patriots lore, here to talk about the Patriots going into this offseason, kind of an offensive coordinator purgatory. Mr. Schofield, how are you doing tonight? I'm not I'm not drunk enough for this. <laughs> I'm not drunk enough to have the Joe Judge conversation that, that lies in front of me. I'm doing well, guys. I, we were just talking before we hit record, man. You guys are just blowing up. I mean, you're going to be... You're going to be having a Vegas residency at some point. You're going to be like you and Luke Bryan with your Vegas residencies, you know, for the next couple of years. It's it's exciting times for you guys. I'm going to ruin Luke Bryan for you right now. Uh, He looks like Butthead. Like when you look at Butthead and then you look at Luke Bryan, you'll never be able to see the two of them differentiate from each other. Yeah, there's there's a likeness there. Now, guys, Mark Schofield is one of the preeminent Patriots podcasters, bloggers. In fact, he's just a great talker of all things football. He's got Mark. What do you have now? You've got a what? A Eagles podcast. You've got I have an Eagles podcast. I'm going to be debuting a Cowboys draft podcast in a couple <laughs> of weeks. Uh, Waldwin and I do a show together. I get the Patriots show. Uh, Doug Farrar and I do some video stuff each week over at USA Today. Um, I, I dabble. I, I dabble. I, I like to dabble. Let's put it that way, Drew. Can you get your friend Doug to unblock us on Twitter? We didn't mean <laughs> to make fun of him. Listen, he scored poorly on the draft five years in a row, and we finally just let him have it, and he did not like that. Yeah, I, I get a lot of people ask me that. Um, can, can you get Doug to unblock? Yeah, I'll re, I'll put in the good word. I, I, I appreciate I've put in the good word for some other people before. I've I, I pulled some strings before. So what? How are you planning on watching the Super Bowl? Um, probably filled with about six pounds of wings. Um, air fryers, kids. Oh, oh boy! Uh, I'm, I'm deep into air fryer Twitter. If there's such a thing, I, I'm deep into air fryer Twitter. Um, no, but it's a work night for me, man. I mean, I'll be writing um, articles as the game unfolds. I think during Super Bowl Fifty Five last year, I wrote like eight pieces during the game. Wow! Um, so it's it's a work night. Um, you know, it, it's what I like about it is. You know, in a sense, the Patriots aren't playing, so it's not like I have to do a, a Pat's podcast at the end of it. I mean, there's nothing, and you guys know this, having to do a show after a brutal loss. Like, it's it's not fun. I mean, 
having to do a show after they lost to the Eagles in the Super Bowl, that was pretty brutal. That, that, that was a rough night. And what made it rougher was that was when uh, Kist and Solak were doing Locked on Eagles, and I was over at Locked on Pats. Yep. Uh, and we had this idea that, hey, you know, it would be fun – We'll we'll take our DMs from the game and turn them into an article. It'll be fun. We'll be ribbing each other. Like we'll be making fun of each other during <laughs> the game. And then if you remember that Super Bowl, Brandon Cooks got like lit up. Yep. Right. He, he got like that play where he got obliterated. Yep. And I started yelling at Kiss, who was at a bar. I'm like, this is this should be a flag. Like this is ridiculous. That's a penalty. That that's he's a defenseless receiver. And of course, I was talking out of my ass. And Solak tried to like sort of like ease the tension, and we were just kind of like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't turn this into an article. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's um it's a work night for me. Super Bowl Fifty Six will be a work night. I'll, I'll crank out some content, and then we get into full on draft mode come Monday morning. Ah, see, that's and that's where kind of you and I met each other. That's where yeah. we met was draft content. You are guys, Mark. Is this source for just I, I don't I don't even know what you want to call it. He's ethereal. He's everywhere that you want football content. Mark is there. It's one of my favorite things about him, and he does it in a way where even as as a Patriots fan, he doesn't come off as being Patriots fanboy, Patriots leaning over. You're, you're Brandon Cooks take aside because let's say let's face it, that, that hit was clean. That was a clean <laughs> that was hit. A heat of the moment. It was a man sized hit. The, the second I watched that play, the next morning I was like, man, what was I talking about? So when we talk about where the Patriots are in terms of, uh, we're here tonight to talk about coaching changes around the AFC East. You guys lose Josh McDaniels and your assistant GM. I mean, because there is no G. He's a GM in title only. He's the AGM because Bill Belichick runs the show. Yeah. It felt very sudden. It just, especially the McDaniels news, it seemed to come out of nowhere. Was the media, were you guys who were plugged into this stuff, were you aware that this was a possibility during the season? Or did it manifest itself as rapidly as it felt like to the rest of us? It all just kind of came to be. Yeah, I mean, we were kind of aware of the possibilities, you know, and we thought, in a sense, McDaniel's getting another gig was an eventual was an eventuality. I mean, uh, unless Belichick just decided, look, I'm done, and McDaniel's became the the, the successor, McDaniel's was going to get nods, and what probably accelerated that, you know, say what you want about Mac Jones, but Jones looked like a serviceable rookie quarterback, and. At times, looked like perhaps the best rookie quarterback. Now, he also had some games where he didn't look great. But Josh McDaniels is now tied to that in a sense. And so the fact that McDaniels takes a rookie quarterback and that team gets into the playoffs and he showed an ability to adjust the offense to Mac Jones and stuff like that, it makes him a, an attractive candidate again. And it gives him a nice pitch to say, hey, you look, I can go in and fix quarterback A, fix offense B, whatever. I was just doing it with a rookie quarterback got them to the playoffs. And so I, I think the Raiders aspect to it was a bit sudden, you know, because that, that kind of came out of nowhere. But the departure of McDaniels, it was kind of something we all knew was going to happen at some point. It's, it's funny because the Bills are going through something similar. Like we just lost our offensive coordinator who kind of right. made his bones of, hey, look, well, I took this guy who was a lump of clay, and under my tutelage, he became X. Now, whether, regardless of who's responsible for what, that's the dynamic. Right. That's the narrative. 
And yep. so you can ride that to a job. Last season he tried and it didn't work. This year it landed because our assistant GM liked him and got yep. his own job and pulled him with him. <sighs> From your perspective, what's the impact on the on the Patriots' ability to run the diverse fronts and just kind of offensive approaches that they've run under over the years under Josh McDaniels now that he's gone how big of a blow is this to how the Patriots have done business here I mean it's a it's a blow I mean I won't sit here and say that it's not and you know it, interestingly enough their playbook their core sort of offensive philosophy and concepts you read the the 2016 playbook you read the 03 the 04 playbooks there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of similarity from Charlie Weiss to Bill O'Brien to, to Josh McDaniels. I mean, there's a, a through line through those different offensive play callers and offensive coordinators that's very similar. Um, so structurally, I don't think the offense will be different. What will be different is certainly stringing together plays, you know, play calling in the moment. And are we going to get, whether it's Joe Judge or somebody else calling plays, the sort of willingness to be flexible with personnel, with designs, with concepts, that I think was really one of McDaniels' strength. And, look, everybody hates the offensive coordinator, the play caller in the middle of a game, right? And, you know, Patriots fans would at times rail about, you know, being conservative to open drives with run plays or crack toss designs or nitpicking calls in the moment. That happens regardless of play caller. But one of the things that McDaniels did really well was, you know, when you, you look at the different ways they were with Brady, whether it was the spread stuff early and the up-tempo stuff early or down the stretch with Brady's run, it was we're going to be 21 personnel and, and ground and pound and run with a fullback. And then, you know, obviously this year with Matt Jones, with – a lot of fullback stuff and 21 personnel stuff and running it just all but three plays in that game Monday night up in Buffalo, you know, that, that flexibility to adjust your offense to not just the personnel, but to the opponent and to the situation. And on one week, you're suddenly this 11 personnel up-tempo team, and the next week, you're 21 personnel, and the week after that, you're 12 personnel to really just adapt in the moment. I don't know if you're going to get that from a Joe Judge or whoever is going to be calling plays next year. And that could be a problem because, again, look, there's talent around the quarterback position, but they need help at receiver. They need a big step forward for Mac Jones. And now you're having a new play caller come in, and there's going to be some differences there. There's room for mistakes. There's room for regression, so to speak. And so that's a concern I think the Patriots fans have right now. It's <sighs> – it's never good for a young quarterback to lose that system because that's yeah. you grow in that. Josh Allen was maybe the rawest quarterback to ever come out in the draft. He was, what did they say, 10,000 reps behind Baker Mayfield? <laughs> when yeah. They took it back to high school, to college, to prep, all the stuff. He was raw and he looked like it. But he grew within the system because the system didn't change. And then all of a sudden he became the system. Now, what Josh Allen wants to do, you kind of have to tailor your play calling to him. Right. Because and, and that's, I think, you know, there are a couple of lessons that everybody's trying to learn from Josh Allen, right? And you guys know this. It's a, it's a copycat league, and everybody wants their version of Josh oh, Allen. Oh, for sure. You look at it, Malik Willis, and it's like, well, you know, can we make him sort of get 
to that level. I'd argue it's um, the reason Trey Lance was taken as high as he was. Yeah, I mean, that's also part of it, too. There's also, look, um, you can't undersell the work that Josh Allen himself did. Like That's part exactly. of it as well. Josh Allen put in a work on his own in the offseason with Jordan Palmer and the like, you know, refining things to where when you get into training camp, it's all right, now it's the playbook because everything else, all the other work has been done. And so I think now, look, when you think about continuity, yes, that's certainly a big reason for Allen's success. Continuity in system, continuity in play caller. By the time these guys were in three with Allen, they knew how to figure things out. They knew how to respond to things. They knew what worked, what didn't work. And so, yeah, obviously, look, with Ken Dorsey, you're going to want to see that sort of continuity for a Bills fan. Matt Jones had that for one year with Joshua Daniels, and now it's going to be a new face. It's going to be a new play caller. It's going to be that feeling out process of, you know, when you're on the sideline after a three and out, like, what do you do? How do you say? How do you communicate? What's working? What isn't? How to fix it in the moment? There's going to be another adjustment phase for a young quarterback, which is never a good thing. So when I look at the potential list of candidates that might fill that vacancy, there are some of it. It just makes me belly laugh. I'm not even trying to be mean to you. I'm just saying, like, I know you're <laughs> I'm not trying to be mean here. You know, we're, from, no. we're friends. Your friend. You are one of our oldest friends. But the fact that Adam Gase's name ever even got brought into the conversation, like, what is he going to bring to the table besides googly eyes and an yeah. offensive? Well, like, the the best thing he's ever done was hold a clipboard for Peyton Manning. Well, Peyton right. Manning did his job. Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, Gase was a. I was in the car. Um, never drive and tweet, kids. But I was at a red light. And I saw the Adam Gase thing, and it was one of those where I was like. I got to pull over. We we can't go down this road. Like, I don't – if you're trying to get – to maximize Mac Jones and to get the best out of Mac Jones, like you said, Drew, Gase's claim to fame is developing or coaching up Peyton Manning, which give me a break. Like, Peyton Manning's Peyton freaking Manning. Peyton Manning called the offense, and that guy took naps. He took naps during So So, yeah, Gase is one that sort of threw me. You know, there's a lot of people drawing connections between, you know, Belichick, O'Brien, Bill O'Brien's time in New England. Um, there is some previous relationship when, when O'Brien was hired by Alabama. They basically put him in a room with Matt Jones to learn the Alabama offense. Like Jones taught it to them. Yeah. Um, so, so there's a work in history between those two, which might make some sense. The idea that Joe Judge is – going to suddenly be their de facto offensive coordinator and play caller. That's a bit out of left field to me, that's, well, but it seems like that's where they want to go with this. That's the reporter that I've heard. And that's what I want to pick your brain about. So this Joe Judge thing, you yeah. went from special teams coordinator to head coach to offensive, like you have input. Because first, the, okay, so let me let me run down the timeline. The first report I read is that the Okay, they're they're hiring and they're interviewing X, Y, and Z. They have interest in Gase and O'Brien. They've got interest in all these people for their offensive coordinator position. Then it comes out that they might not pick an offensive coordinator. And I, and I don't want to get ahead of myself because I remember the year. I remember the year where I made fun of the Patriots and I said, okay, they're going with the circle defense because they have no corners. 
Right. And that was the year you guys won the Super Bowl. So I, it was one of the years you guys won it. So I didn't want to tempt fate. I said, okay, I'll just wait before I make jokes. And then it started being talked about how, well, maybe we'll just approach with Joe Judge putting some influence on the play calling. And I go, well, what does that mean? How is an offense going to operate without an offensive coordinator? I've never heard of this thing happening in pro football. Can you walk me through what this looks like? And maybe talk a little bit about what your favorite situation out of all this quagmire might actually be. I honestly, I don't know how that would look to like not have an offensive coordinator. I mean, it it just, it doesn't seem to make sense to me. Now, look, they've, they've got obviously a big staff of people they can draw upon. Um, but the idea that you don't have sort of a dedicated offensive coordinator that is that is going to be you know putting together you know game plans that is going to be putting together game scripts that is going to have you know his hands in any everything like that it it doesn't make sense to me now look Ivan Fears the running backs coach he's rumored to be retiring so then you're going to have another bit of brain drain right there um, Mick Lombardi has spent a ton of time in and around the game. Would he be somebody? Because, you know, they added the wide receiver coach tag to judge as well when he was with New England the first go-around to sort of build out his resume. Could Lombardi be the guy as the receivers coach that sort of gets that? Maybe. Uh, Bo Hardigree, uh, quality control and quarterbacks, like he's just been with them for a season. Like I, I don't think that's where they go. So, yes, there are a lot of people in the room. But I still think you need somebody in charge of it all. Like, like, like Joe Judge is an offensive assistant, but he's never been a play caller. Like he's never been an offensive coordinator. I still think they need to either promote somebody. Although looking at this list, I'm not sure who you'd promote, um, or hire somebody from the outside. And you know, in, in terms of the potential people, I think O'Brien does make a ton of sense because a he knows this offense. You know, he's coached it before. And there is at least some relationship between him and the quarterback. Because let's be clear, this is all about the quarterback. This is all about Matt Jones and getting him where he needs to be. You know, you, the Patriots will say the right things. Bill Belichick will mumble. It, it, it's about all 53. It's about all 11 players on offense. This is about the quarterback. Like when you have that rookie quarterback, and Drew, you're shaking your head because you guys know this. You guys weren't making decisions in, you know, Josh Allen's rookie year or his second year about all eleven on offense. It was for seventeen. Like you had to get Allen where he is right now, or you know, when you close at, to where he is right now. Well, if you look, and that the, was the goal. If you look at the fruit that that's born for our franchise, you literally come down to this idea that. When you look at where the AFC now runs through, it runs through Kansas City, it runs through Cincinnati, it runs through Buffalo, it runs through these teams that you go, well, even if their defense shits the bed, they're great football teams. Why? Because they have elite quarterback play. Yep. The Patriots have to find a way to get Mac Jones into that conversation. And if you don't have the support staff around him, not having an offensive coordinator, Having a weak offensive uh, offensive coaching staff in terms of if Ivan Fears does retire. In, in the event that Hardigree, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen there. I don't know who's coaching him. Right. Kind of teaching him the ways. 
it's it's a lot for a Patriots team who's also hemorrhaging a lot of defensive talent this offseason. And some of it's just you have to, right? You're not going to pay a ton of money for Donta Hightower. Right. You're not going to say, and we just got done with a salary cap based podcast where we talked about how there's a lot of players in the Patriots defense that have been glue guys for a long time yep. that are simply too long in the tooth and too expensive. You guys need to get younger, faster. You did a good job drafting on defense this last year, but you've got guys right. like Chase Winovich who find themselves in the doghouse too often. And yep. Uche is good here and there, but they're not impactful. Judon, the prize free agent jewel, he that that kind of fizzled out over the last month and a half of football. Yep. There's so much here that's kind of up in the air that having this extra turmoil on the offensive side of things, at the one position that might actually trump all of the other things. If your quarterback plays well, more often than not you win. Right. The fact that you guys have all this going on on the offensive side, something Bilichek can't really fix. He can pave over a lot of the mistakes that the franchise might make. He can't fix that side. And the other thing is, as the departure of Brady illuminated, the quarterback can pave over a lot of mistakes from a roster construction standpoint, provided he's an elite quarterback. Yes. And so that gives you an extra wide margin for error in terms of roster construction mistakes, because when you draft these wide receivers that don't pan out, it's one thing if it's Mac Jones throwing the ball, it's another thing if it's Tom Brady. And so, again, that gets back to the point that, you know, yes, they have issues on the defensive side of the ball. Gerard Mayo talked about it on uh, Radio Row this week, you know, saying that they've got to get more athletic on defense, they've got to get faster on defense, and certainly they do. There's, you know, needs at the second and third and even up front on the defensive side of the ball. But you got to get Mac Jones where he needs to be. And when it comes to the offensive side, when it comes to additions that need to be made, whether it's the wide receiver position, additions that need to be made, of the coaching positions with an offensive coordinator decision and a play caller decision, it has to be geared towards, okay, let's take it through the rosiest sort of set of glasses from a Patriots fan's perspective, right? If you're a Patriots fan, you're thinking – all this talk about Matt Jones and ceilings and things like that. He got up to the playoffs as a rookie. Like, his ceiling's a lot higher than, than people are saying. Okay, sure, maybe it is. How do you get him there? You know, how do you get him there? And certainly there's work, like we talked about with Josh Allen, that Jones is going to have to do, and he's talked about that, and it's diet and getting stronger. And, yeah, he needs to get a little more velocity. And that's all stuff he can do in the spring, and that's great. But when it's third and seven on the road against – the Kansas City Chiefs of the world and the the Bengals of the world and the Bills of the world, are they going to be able to get a play call in that Jones trusts so they can then execute? And that has to come from the coaching side. And so they got to figure out a coaching staff around Jones to help him get to this perhaps higher ceiling that he has than we thought he did coming into the league. No, that's perfect. And it's, it's going to be interesting to see what way you guys decide to go. And it's interesting that you haven't tabbed somebody yet because it feels like a yeah. I mean, it's it's relatively early, and what's weird is I feel like in years past, all these higher ends were done by all these teams well before the Senior Bowl, right? You wanted to get all the coaching mm-hmm. staffs in place. Now it seems like with the ability 
perhaps to watch more film from a scouting standpoint. True. Perhaps with an ability or, or even maybe a less limited sense to, to make work, travels. Working remotely. Yeah, I mean, working yeah, remotely it, changed the game. It did change the game, Drew. That's exactly right. People aren't traveling as much, so they're just home watching film. And so that you don't need this, you know, you don't have the sunk cost of like a flight down to Mobile, which, you know, is a little bit tougher to get to than some other places in this country. And so, you know, maybe they're just taking their time with it and they'll have a staff in place, you know, right before the start of free agency, you know, in the combine. Because I think, I think certainly you want to get your entire staff in place for the combine because that's when you're going to really start getting your board set and making decisions. And so, you know, if we're having this conversation and I'm out in Indy for the combine and it's like, well, it looks like Joe Judge is calling plays. Yeah, I'll start sweating a little. I'm going to let it breathe a little bit right now and hope that they get somebody in. Because, again, as I've outlined, you got to get it right for Matt Jones. If, if I'm having this conversation when I'm coming to you live from the JW Marriott, that's going to be that's going to be what I'm breathing heavy. <laughs> Mark, you're a consummate professional. We love you. Where can people find your work on the Bird app? And where uh, can they uh, find uh, you uh, in, uh, in all of your very – I want you to plug every outlet you're currently working at because I just want people gonna, to understand how much work you do. I'm going to easily forget one. You can find me on the Steak-A-Map at um, Mark Schofield. The um, <laughs> All right. So USA Today's Touchdown Wire, Matt Waldman's RSP Quick Game Podcast. Blog and the boys where I'm going to draft a show that's coming out. Me and Connor, we're going to be dropping that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Bleeding Green Radio uh, with Rachel Prevet. Uh, the Sco Show, uh, Big Blue View. I do some work for football guys. I think, I think that's everything. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And so moving on as we talk about the AFC East coaching carousel, probably the biggest hire and the biggest transition of any AFC East team this offseason It's the Miami Dolphins hiring their new first-time head coach, Mike McDaniels, and hope that he's the guy to to just kind of take the reins here and resurrect this franchise. And here to talk to us about it is, he is always, Mr. Alfartiaga from Three Yards Per Carry. How are you? I'm doing great. You you might, just from the perspective of a content creator, you guys are blessed. (laughs) <laughs> in Miami because where is a lot of fan bases, like a lot of teams are running out of like, this is where you're in this. There's a couple dead spaces throughout the NFL off season. There's the, Hey, our season ended before the super bowl. And it's kind of too early to really start forecasting free age too much about free agency. Um, it's the combine hasn't happened and all this stuff. So, so it's harder to start prognosticating draft stuff. 
But you guys have had so much to talk about down in Miami covering your football team. No shortage of topics to cover. I mean, that, that has to have been kind of fun, right? Us kind of nailing the Dolphins, kind of nailing the 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 coach hire because on the day the day after Brian Flores got canned down here, we did a podcast and we mentioned Mike McDaniel as our as our favorite. Like he was the favorite in our clubhouse, and sure enough, our our listeners followed suit. Every single poll that I've seen conducted anywhere for the past three weeks has shown massive, and I mean massive advantages for Mike McDaniel to be hired. And sure enough, they went through with it. So everybody's happy right now, which is kind of, you know, I don't know if it's kind of foreboding. Like something <laughs> bad always happens while everybody's happy. Because this, this franchise is usually never really happy. No, okay? no, your fan base, and we've, we've joked about it all season, your fan base is unique in the sense that you have the the people who have high hopes but then, like Chris, our fan base, we have a segment that's always going to be pessimists, correct? Yep. And you figure, what's the split on that between optimists, realists, and pessimists? It's probably like a 50-30-20 split. I think that would be fair, don't you think? If you're talking about optimism, realism, pessimism. The Dolphins fan base has, like, it's almost a... F- it's like there's this... You have 40% of the fan base that's pretty positive about the direction things are going in. You've got another 40% that thinks is just waiting for everything to explode in their faces. And then almost like they're trying to will it into existence. And then the other 20% that's just happy to be along for the ride. And it's I've, I've never <laughs> seen anything like it before in my life. But it is interesting. Well, some of it is just... It- is absolutely insane if you've been following some of it like they just hired mike mcdaniel if you take to twitter to talk about how this is completely going to fail then you have a mental issue and you should probably log off of twitter (laughs) at least for the week and wait for us to introduce the coach okay yeah it's 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 an interesting thing like there's nothing a bit even the most negative people in your fan base that we associate with on social media it's interesting to see them being positive about this. And it's funny because you did. I mean, I, you, I, I got excited as soon as I saw the name because before Brian Dable took the Giants job, before McDaniels fled New England for the Vegas desert, and before the rumors about Harbaugh had really even, really even gotten to their peak, you guys were on the Mike McDaniels train. So for our listeners, what can you tell them about why he was your most favorable choice out of all of the options that were out there? Uh, he's the quickest. Uh, I, I would say he's the quickest fix to what ails the Dolphins. What ails the Dolphins really is the offensive side of the ball is basically barren. It's it's a blank canvas. You have a couple of nice players, nothing else. Uh, this guy's going to implement a a system and a philosophy that is the best fit for the current team to actually make the playoffs and make it in the first year of Mike McDaniel being the head coach. They're going to add speed on offense, and they're essentially going to keep the defense completely intact. I I feel like that's one of the biggest boons you guys have because I I think if this NFL – I said it to you in our DMs at one point. If this postseason has taught – Anybody who's watching NFL football, anything, it should be that having an elite defense doesn't mean a whole lot. 
it's helpful, but but you're better off having a powerhouse offense and a, a competent defense. That's going to take you farther than building a defensive juggernaut that piles up favorable statistics during the regular season, then hits the postseason. Look, so we were the number one defense entering the postseason. We played the number two defense in the wild card round, and we dunked all over them. And then we took that defense into that game against the Kansas City Chiefs, thinking it was an advantage for us, and they did the same thing to us. I think they piled up over 600 yards total. Ultimately, having all of that defensive, those favorable defensive statistics don't matter in those types of games. What's going to win or lose you in the AFC as it's presently constructed is your offense. And so in that way, it, it I think it speaks to that, that you bring in a guy like Mc, you bring in this guy to try to fix what's broken and also salvage the guy who you drafted in the top five of the NFL draft, who was supposed to be and could still be the face of your franchise, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Dan Orlovsky said it best. Uh, Tuatungabaloa's best year in Alabama was under Steve Sarkeesian. Steve Sarkeesian coached with Mike Shanahan, and Mike McDaniel coached with with Kyle Shanahan. So we're talking about it's an incestuous relationship, right? And it's incestuous. You're talking about from Steve Sarkeesian to Mike McDaniel, it's you know, it's like two degrees of separation. So it should be a good thing for for Tua because it's his system. It's the system he ran at Alabama. So the only difference is it's it's more uh, adapted to the NFL. And Mike McDaniel has a different little flavor to it, meaning he's going to really push the idea that they have to run the football and run it effectively. So everything's going to be done to fix that running game first and implement that running game first. And I'm all for it. Like, I've, if you think about it, the 70s, our first trip to the Super Bowl in the 80s against the Washington, at that time, the Redskins, all of that was done with defense and running the football. Then we had Marino, one trip to the Super Bowl, a lot of losing after that with teams that were just good defensively, never really could run the football. So it's getting back to basics, and I think it's the best thing for for Tua Tungvaluwa. No, I think so too. He needs more support. Now, here's one of the points of contention, and I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna pull up a tweet that I sent somebody. Um, it's because essentially they're, they're, I've seen a lot of stuff from Dolphins fans, and I understand the optimism, especially like here you're talking about your sense of optimism in terms of McDaniel's system and how. It's it's exotic, and at the same time, it's one of those things that you... It's exotic in the way he executes things, but overall, the concepts aren't aren't something that you would be ter- terribly hard to implement. At the same time, I've seen a lot of Dolphins fans you know, applauding because they just say, okay, he ran the 49ers offense, now he's going to bring the 49ers offense here to Miami. And so to one of our Dolphins fans that we interact with, a group of them, I said, you guys are painfully oversimplifying what the 49ers did. Because to run the ball like the San Francisco 49ers do, you need to build one of the most athletic offensive fronts in football. I mean, to to execute it the way that they were doing it, the exact same way. They have three stud offensive linemen from left tackle, left guard to center, who are just stellar athletes. An absurdly athletic fullback in Kyle Juszczyk. 
George Kittle is this hyper-athletic tight end who is not only a pass-catching threat, so he kind of your linebackers have to be aware of where he is, but he's also very good at blocking on the move. And Debo Samuel is probably... I, there's only a handful of players in the NFL right now who can do what he does the way he does it. Who can, hey, I can go run routes cleanly and go win that way. At the same time, I can line up in the backfield and I can win because my vision in the open field or when I have blocking, I can also follow blocking and I have good field vision. Almost like a, a, a better version of Cordero Patterson, what he is right now. They had all of those things. In order to execute it the same way in Miami, he's going to have to try to find enough talent to plug in and fill a lot of those gaps. And I just don't think that that's reasonable. Now, that doesn't mean that they could be bad. It doesn't mean they have to be bad. It doesn't mean that he can't have success. I, I just think that, I just think that it's going to be difficult. Is there any concern from you or from your group over at three yards per carry in terms of, how much lifting it's going to take for this franchise to ultimately execute what McDaniel's vision for his perfect offense might be, considering how poorly stocked the Dolphins' cupboard is on offense. Well, I don't think that it's going to be all too difficult in one sense. They have a lot of cap space, and they can create more by cutting what is going to be non-essential personnel. Okay. Okay. And you know we're talking about an excess of eighty to ninety million dollars, and in real, in realistically, somewhere around sixty to seventy million dollars in additional payroll. I think you could buy two offensive linemen, a running back, a tight end, a wide receiver. You could do a lot with sixty to seventy million dollars in additional payroll, and they don't really have to do too much to retain what they have. On the defensive side of the ball, everybody's under contract except one guy. That one guy is probably going to be the top priority, which is Emmanuel Ogba. Uh, is he going to get a lot of money? Absolutely. But they, they have the money to pay him, and most of the defense is a bunch of young guys that are still on rookie contracts, so they're still cheap. So they can might have to give to Xavier Howard's contract. They're already paying for it. They already got like $13 million on the books. So an upgrade is about $3 million. So when you start – taking away money from that 70 million that they have projected. It's not really all that much that you, you that you're using to pay for your defense. So the rest, what are you going to do with it? Spend it on the offensive side of the ball. And that's exactly what they have to do. So when I see that, and I hear you say that my mind immediately wanders to your GM <laughs> and just all of the, because again, we talk about your fan base and a lot of the detritus that kind of comes with your fan base. All of the just, free agency has not been kind. I'll say it this way. Free agency hasn't been kind to the Miami Dolphins over the course of the last, we'll call it 10 years. I think that that's fair. Chris, can can you picture in your head for Free agent signings that panned out for the Dolphins versus ones that blew up. Mario Williams. Yeah, I, I can think of a lot of negative ones. Yeah, Indama Sue. Sue was more of a just a, a zero sum gain. It was just it happened. He wasn't a bad player, but he didn't do enough to transform the defense the way they expected him to. Scott Mitchell was that a <laughs> how how. How much is riding on Greer's offseason this year? Like you said, you have a lot of money to spend. But there's also been some notable whiffs. The 
the Will Fuller thing that a lot of people would have told you probably spending that much money on a guy who's missed so much through his career has a lot of ways it could go wrong. Is there a lot of trust in the fan base right now that Chris Greer can execute that properly enough to stock your cupboard? Uh, yes and no. And here's the thing. Uh, if you ask most Dolphin fans, they, they'll blame Chris Greer for everything. They'll blame him for the Hindenburg blowing up, and he was even born then. So anything that Chris Greer does, they're going to look at it, and they're going to look at it suspiciously. But I tend to look at it uh, this way. A lot of his swings in free agency, if you think about it, fakes. Like the Will Fuller mistake just cost him a roster spot for one year. And some money for that one year. And, you know, you don't want to have $10 million sitting on IR the entire year. Uh, evidently, Will Fuller, by the way, just had another surgery. So something we reported on three yards per carry is also is proving to be true. And it's looking kind of likely like his career is on the ropes for because it, it was what we reported and we reported on OnlyFans and on the podcast. He almost had his, his finger amputated. So you could you could chuck that one up to Jacoby Brissett, okay? But as far as his misses, you know, like nothing is some pretty big hits. Uh, I would call Emmanuel Ogba a huge hit. Eric Rowe has been a huge hit. Those two guys are guys that – those are the ones that they actually committed money to, and they're actually playing pretty well. I love Byron Jones, and I understand a lot of people are saying, well, you're paying him $16 million. Well, guess what? You know, it ain't my money. <laughs> the guy plays good, and he's on my team, and my GM signed him. Okay, he gave him a little bit too much money. You want the player, you got to pay for him. Byron Jones had a he had an offer him money. You're going to have to overpay. You want a good player, you got to pay them. So he has had some hits here as of late, and a lot of his misses, like I said, he gets out of them. Like he wiggles his way out of them. Well, I mean, there's that. That, that works. And it'll be interesting to see how much they can support you this offseason. They can support this new coach. But really the crux of what he does for your team, you know, it was we played the audio as the intro to tonight's show, this relationship building with the quarterback. Because there's serious bridges that need to be rebuilt between this franchise and this quarterback. Now, a lot of people scapegoat Brian Flores as the guy who was the wedge between, hey, I don't want Tua Tungvaloa. I don't think I can win with him. I'd like a better, more dynamic quarterback. We'd all like a better, more dynamic quarterback. Everybody would, unless you're the Kansas City Chiefs, the Buffalo Bills, the Cincinnati Bengals, um, the Green Bay Packers, uh, the what, the Chargers, the... You could even argue the Rams, who are in the Super Bowl, would probably like to have a more dynamic quarterback than Matt Stafford. He's what they have. It's working for them, and it's gotten them this far. But at the end of the day, there's only a handful of guys who have that. Everybody wants better than what they have. But that's not to say that Tua can't be, can't, can't be not just serviceable, but good for your franchise. It just seems like the last guy really went out of his way to marginalize this guy, or at least not to help foster his growth. And so you could hear it in that the audio that we played and just the phone call that's it's gone viral. Everybody's heard it. But how big is this when you look at it from being a fan of this team and saying this is the thing that's either going to make or break him as a head coach? It's pretty sizable, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a completely different person, okay? Uh, Brian Flores, uh, we've talked about it, and we talked about it on the podcast. 
he essentially tried to bench Tua Baloa without benching him. And when he was six, seven, it's, you know, the previous coach wasn't all that big of a fan or he had a different way of, of developing a player or bringing a player along. His, his idea of a relationship was a little bit more standoffish than what Mike McDaniel. Come on, let's face it. Uh, our new head coach kept talking, kept calling our quarterback bro on, <laughs> on, the, on the phone call. So he's looking at him as almost like as an equal. And to be honest with you, maybe that's what's needed right now, especially after what we just went through with, with our previous coach, you know? A guy who's going to look at everybody else as their equal. Uh, I, ta- I talked to a coach once. Uh, I'll even give you his name, Bill Lazor, who's n- who was now with the Bears. I believe he got canned this year, by the way. And Bill Lazor once told me, look, the coach's responsibility is to get his players paid, and his players' responsibility is to keep me employed. That should be the relationship between a coach and a player, and that's what Mike McDaniel has basically come in and – kind of installed right away is, you know, we're basically co-workers. My job is to get you paid. Your job is to keep me employed. Well, and that's the way it should be. I mean, that's the way any head coach should view what is the most important position on any NFL field on, a given, on any given Sunday. It doesn't matter where it is. There isn't a team in the NFL, even the 49, even the 49ers team that only needed to throw the ball nine times to beat the Green Bay Packers. They still needed Jimmy G to go out there, hand the ball off, make the right line calls, make the right decisions. Don't screw it up. I need you. Because if you botch this, you're the only guy who touches the ball on every single play. (laughs) So Unless we go wildcat, that's it. You need to have your head in the game, and I need you to be successful. So I can't afford to marginalize you. It seems like you guys are at least on the right track for that kind of relationship building. I think if nothing else, that might be the biggest thing that defines what McDaniel can accomplish here in Miami. I if I think that how he handles this, if Tua flames out, if if, I, if it turns out that under two different head coaches and two different systems, Tua just can't cut it, and they go out and they get another quarterback and they they try it again. <laughs> I just feel like it's going to carry a lot of weight as far as what, at least what the relationship was and what he can do to try to coach Tua up in that regard. I think if he does better and if you show signs of life, even if Tua dis- turns out not to be the answer in Miami, you're going to know that you have a head coach whose offensive acumen is solid and can help the next guy whoever i think that that would underscore that he deserves a shot at being around whenever the next guy were to show up and i think that that'll go on to define a lot of what his career is it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out i'm sure you guys over three yards per carry will keep all of us up to date on it which is why i'm telling you guys as a bills fan i go out of my way to listen to three yards per carry i think you should too elf where can people find your work and where can they find you on social Yards per carry. That's our handle. And of course, you can get our podcast wherever you get your podcasts Spotify, iTunes, wherever. Just put the number three yards per carry. That's our podcast. Alf Artiaga, Mark Schofield, two of the best that cover the AFC East and their respective teams, kind of like the NWO. They have so many different factions, people coming in and out, just like their coaching staffs. Coming in and out. 
new OCs, new DCs, new head coaches. How many different wrestlers were actually in that nonsense? There were a lot. Like, I never understood. I thought it was like this hand thing where you, it's almost like the rock symbol, but then you make your fingers touch in the middle and it almost looks like a dog head. And I, some and then you touch, well, some touch kid, tips but some with each kid other. used to walk around going, wolf pack, wolf pack. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. I it, remember in high school walking around going, I don't know what this kid is yelling. Hey, yeah, had NWO, NWO wolf pack. And then that also spawned uh, the LWO, Latino world order. And then you had the, the BWO, the blue world order and ECW. And then you had NWO 2000. This sounds like it got out of hand. This sounds less like a wrestling group it did. and more like a bad fad. It did. Why do you think WCW failed miserably at the end? Because they were coming up with ideas. Hey, hey, let's let's redo the NWO thing, but we'll call it NWO 2000. <laughs> it, it's like Dunder Mifflin Infinity. <laughs> yeah. All of the problems with the original website will be solved when we roll out Dunder Mifflin Infinity, Dunder Mifflin Infinity 2.0. When's the release date? TBD. <laughs> yeah, I like it. The um, uh, <clears throat> There's one thing I'll say about Mike McDaniels. He does look like the lead guy at Best Buy's Geek Squad. <laughs> and he, he, he gets irritated when you ask him, like, obvious questions. Like, what's a gigabyte? Like he gets irritated with that. He throws your laptop. Yeah, and he all, he also looks like his favorite actor is James Franco, and his favorite movies thirty minutes or less. He just like he has like all that entire catalog, just based on the amount of times he says "bro" and "dude." Jesus, Pineapple Express is one of his favorite movies. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh my god. So it was one of the things I forgot to break Elf's balls about the the fact that. They finally have somebody who they know. Like, they can finally point to someone and go, hey, that's the guy calling the plays. It'll be the first time since Brian Flores took over. (laughs) Nobody, like, what a hilarious episode that entire Brian Flores era was. Yeah. In retrospect, if you were writing a franchise history book... it, it that's a that's a rough chapter because it always ends the same way with Buffalo just kicking you in the face <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> ah. But so those the two teams with a lot of questions and, and a lot of things up in the air. Now, I want to ask you, is it fair to say, Chris, after our discussion last week with Nate, the Bills have far fewer questions on the coaching staff front than either of our closest division rivals do right now. Yeah, well, we are still looking for a special teams coordinator. Oh, no, they've promoted. Uh, they've promoted from within. It was just announced a few minutes ago while we were recording. Uh, Millsy, I believe, is his last name. All right. Uh, so he was the assistant yes. to the special teams coordinator? Yep. Assistant to the assistant to the uh, what is this? Assistant to the dis- district manager? Yeah, assistant to the special teams coordinator. Yeah, and he finally got the call. Now, hopefully, unlike Dwight Schrute, he doesn't discharge a firearm in the office. Uh, but no, when you look at our situation compared to our divisional opponents, we've got superior talent at most of the most impactful positions. We've got continuity and familiarity between our new offensive coordinator which should alleviate any sort of break-in period that some of these other teams are going to go through trying to build the offensive side of their football and their offensive philosophies. We've got a draft and a free agency strategy that's probably not impacted by these hires that we've made, correct? 
Yeah. Whatever our plans were going into this offseason, they haven't changed, which is something neither of those other franchises can say with any confidence. I think it's a I think it's a decent place to be. And while the offensive coordinator discussion was a good one, the Bills also recently brought some clarity to some of their own fi- their own final vacancies that are interesting in how I I see them lining up for the Bills. The first one was quarterback coach Joe Brady. Now you spawned one of the most horrific pieces of conversation that's ever taken place in this podcast. And that's saying something, Chris. What did I do? When you brought up the fact that you saw Joe Brady as a baby deer that needed to be nursed back to health, and, yeah. Nate, and Nate took us on a <clears throat> wild ride down... Oh, yeah, stabbing a deer. Just... It's, well, hey, Joe Brady, hot commodity out of LSU, goes to Carolina where they don't have anything, and he fails to create anything offensively and so he's been kind of demoted to quarterback coach with us is it really a demotion though like hey it'll be interesting to see what kind of wrinkles he brings to our offense if you had to take a demotion anywhere to quarterbacks coach would it be in carolina or buffalo buffalo yeah In, in a lot of ways you could almost see it like a lateral move because here's my first instinct when i heard the news is it felt like a pipeline builder. That's the type of signing that that is. The concept that our offensive coordinator, Brian Dable, who was previously viewed as a hot commodity on the coaching circuit, finally left for a gig of his own. And he's been replaced by a quarterback's coach turned offensive coordinator in Ken Dorsey, whose talents were also being sought out by multiple other teams to fill that same role. I mean, it wasn't just us. It wasn't just the Giants. There were multiple teams that were saying, look, Ken, if the Bills opt not to keep you or they hire someone else, we, we'd we like your services. And the, he, he inevitably decided to stay here, right? But if he's successful here, there's I think if we've learned anything from that job, that we need to establish a consistent succession plan for that position because that's the fallout of having elite quarterbacks. How many of the offensive coordinators that have coached Aaron Rodgers have gone on to be head coaches themselves? There's Nate been ha- a number of them. Nate Hackett. Nate Hackett most recently. Joe Philbin. Oh, got his yeah. Start. yeah. Joe Philbin Joe got his Philbin. start because he was coaching an elite quarterback in an offense that went and won the Super Bowl. That went and contended consistently. There's a number of other coaches when you look at the elite quarterbacks. The you know, Tom Brady. He had a couple co- uh, offensive coordinators over the years who went on to be head coaches. McDaniels left and came back. O'Brien. Yep. Uh, was Charlie Weiss? Yes, Charlie okay. Weiss. This is a thing that you as a franchise who has an elite quarterback, you got to prepare yourself for. And the best way to do that is to bring in someone, familiarize themselves with your talents, and then promote them from within because, again, you're trying to eliminate any break-in period because continuity is key. right? We've seen, look at Alex Smith didn't look like a quality quarterback until his seventh year, eighth year in the league when he landed in Kansas City because every season of his career, he had a new offensive coordinator. I think he, I think he got it started in San Francisco with... Harbaugh, when he got there. He was doing well. And then Kaepernick took his job. Yep. So they traded him away to Andy Reid, and Andy Reid revitalized his entire career. 
because he finally had a strong offensive mind to back him up. So in that way, though, uh, you don't want to keep rotating through these things because it can you can stagnate. You can make a bad hire if you're just constantly having to hire someone from outside the building. You want someone in what is the most important facet of a team. You know, we were just talking with Alpha about this. The concept that having an elite offense is better than having an elite defense. Yeah. Nine times out of ten. Yeah. So... You want to know that you're not going to that you're not going to have a, a break in period or any stalling of your offense. And so, in that way, when Ken Dorsey inevitably does well at the wheel of this Bills offense, and some team is able to say, "Okay, we wanted you as an offensive coordinator, but we couldn't get you. Now you're available as a head coach. We want you now because we've seen what you can do." Should we do that for a Seagram's bet? What's that? What a future Seagram's bet? What off season does Ken Dorsey get a head coaching job? I like because, the idea because you know it's com- you know it's coming. Yeah, playing with Allen. Well, why don't we do that? Do you want to you want to do that Seagram's bet? Yeah. What off what off which off season do you feel that he gets his head coaching job? I don't know. Let's let's think about it for a week and we'll come back and we'll we'll make the bet during next week's podcast. Got it. Okay. But so like that, having someone with Joe Brady's acumen waiting in the wings is a it's a it's a blessing. It really is. It's a boon to this coaching staff. And I I just like that. I like the concept of it. He's also interesting because the concepts that he's attuned to are things that the Bills with Allen at the helm of the offense have been wildly successful with. Specifically in relation to his love of RPOs and play action passing. Of which the Bills finished top five for each this season. They were top five in play action passing attempts. They were, t- I think they were fourth in RPOs and top five using RPO concepts in the red zone. It's something that's baked into what's made this team successful. So it makes sense that you would keep a guy like Ken Dorsey and then backfill with a guy who's also familiar with those concepts as the core of his offensive philosophy. I think Greg was, uh, Greg Thompson, cover one Buffalo podcast. I think he was kind of irritated that Davis Webb was going back to the Giants because he wanted him in that, still in that player coach role and then inevitably to take a like assistant QB coach mm-hmm. role so you can keep that pipeline going oh, yeah. for the next seven years. Well, Davis Webb is still going to be out there, and depending on how hilariously... I, I, I wish Brian Dable and Joe Shane all the best over there in New Jersey, but it doesn't... Do things ever really go well over there? No, they haven't been good in a while. No. And they, they tend to make a lot of bad decisions organizationally. So it'll be interesting to see well, if I think Shane's Shane, the guy to turn it around. I think Shane was the first GM that they got outside of the building. Which is which is a positive <laughs> step already. I mean, come on. But, so, I don't know. I, I just think that developing this pipeline's good. His philosophical familiarity with the things that the Bills want to do anyway is good. It's also a natural fit, in considering when you look at what he was, to your point in our in our last show... Hot name on the offensive coordinating circuit after the clinic that him and Joe Burrow put on at LSU. But was essentially just completely undone in his first stint as an NFL play caller by a really shitty situation in Carolina. Definitely, definitely did not have the talent. I don't know a lot of teams that could thrive in the environment that Matt Rule has built for himself down there in Carolina. I mean, who's their quarterbacks? Sam Darnold who I think that they genuinely believe they had a better sense of confidence than they had any right to 
in Sam Darnold's ability to, I don't know, find himself down there. They bet $21 million and an entire lost season on Sam Darnold being the guy. P.J. Walker played quarterback. Kim Newton played quarterback. What do we know about all three of those guys? Uh, not, not good throwing the football. So when you look at a guy who says, hey, I love to run an RPO-heavy system based around throwing the football to space and letting my fast guys eat, running into a situation where Matt Rule is telling him, well, we need to run the ball more because our offense can't be productive unless we run the ball. He's like, well, that's not my fault. I'm not the one who decided to do this with the roster. <laughs> you don't get to blame me for that. You could see how that divorce kind of came about organically, right? Absolutely. So I, I really do believe that he's a talent. You saw it. A talent like Chris in college football, a lot of what is produced, there are there's sometimes a universal talent like a Cam Newton who just wills a team to wins at the collegiate level. But a lot of times it's a lot of it's a, it's great talent and great coaching working in concert. That's the only way to explain what Florida was. With what, uh, Chris Leak and Tim Tebow at quarterback? God. Yeah, yeah, national champions with that team. Offensive juggernauts. Those guys, they're not a pimple on a quarterback's ass. Yeah, so, they had a hell of a passing offense. Also had uh, Riley Cooper was there. Yeah, Riley Cooper, um, Jordy Nelson. I don't know. Or was that no, too soon? No, Jordy Nelson. I think went somewhere else. I thought he went in the. I thought he played like Big Twelve. I, I don't thought, know. I thought Jordy Nelson played at Kansas. Call him they, if you know. They had uh, Aaron Hernandez. Yeah, they so they him. they had the SEC. They led the SEC in like offense and murders. <laughs> but so what it is is like when you pile up statistics the way that they did, it's a sign that not only do you have talent, but also you have good coaching. And that your concepts are sound because other teams can't defend them at that level. Now, whether they matriculate to the NFL is yet to be seen, but at least you know that philosophically they're sound. I, I look at that and I say to myself, so he's a guy who maybe needed, maybe he needed, he got thrown into the fire too quickly. And he did it on a bad football team that didn't have the depth that they thought they did. But maybe he could, with some time, bend those ideas, make them more malleable, hammer them out a little bit. Get to work with a star quarterback and figure out what what do you and don't you like about these concepts. And let me take what I thought about being an OC and change it to fit what this guy is. And maybe this could produce dividends if I'm given the shot to take the reins. That's really what you're looking to see. And it, it's the final thing that interests me about him. Because in that way, there's something that all of his quarterbacks and all of the offenses he called collegiately thrived on that the Buffalo Bills were one of the worst in football at, which is yards after the catch. It's it, it's not a secret, Chris. We are bad when it comes to yards after the catch. And it's not a wide receiver stat, even though it gets reported as one whenever you're looking at box scores. It's more of an indicator of a quarterback. His ball placement, how he's seeing the field, how he's anticipating guys breaking into coverage, breaking out of coverage, coming out of their routes, and also just the overall scheme. Now, under Dable, the Bills thrived off deep crossing patterns and downfield passing concepts that allowed us to gain chunk yardage, either going cutting towards the middle of the field, going towards the sideline, or post routes. Just post routes. Okay, great. That's wonderful. 
it never really gave our wide receivers a chance to use their own physical skill sets in space to operate after the catch. Brady, on the other hand, has spent a huge chunk of his career operating a system that thrives off getting those skill players into space and having running backs that run real routes. Clyde Edwards Hilaire, the first round pick of the Kansas City Chiefs, played on that Joe Burrow national title team in at LSU. And he was catching balls left and right, running real routes, <laughs> running re- corner routes. Run- and it was devastating for defenses to try to compete with because the wide receivers will clear out the DBs, and now it's on the linebacker to cover a much faster running back. Oh, by the way, if you can teach them to run routes, you, you can't stop all of the options. And if you have a quarterback with an arm the size of Josh Allen's, you can expand the box that that type of offense can operate in. Now you're talking about literally making a de- his quote, I'd like to try to make a defense deflate, de- defend every blade of grass. With Allen's arm talent, you can actually do that with that kind of concept. So I think it's inter- it's going to be interesting to me to see how Brady can coach up Allen in that regard to teach him how to generate yak. You know, to say, listen, there, there's things you're leaving on the table. Yeah, you made that 40-yard pass. Wonderful. But if you had taken the one that was 26 yards downfield instead of the one that, hey, I threaded the needle on this ridiculous throw on a 40-yard on a 40-yard out to the right sideline to Gabe Davis because his catching ability and his toe-tapping ability is crazy. But you had a guy at 26 yards who could have caught the ball and based on the way the safeties were aligned, he has a chance to break it even farther than that. But you weren't thinking that. His ability to coach and mold Allen to see more of those opportunities, that's what I'm interested in. Just how he can work with those guys to let our wide receivers do more with their own physical skill sets. It, I just think it's a great marriage, and it's one that I'm, I'm looking to see play out as the offense takes the field. The other signing was Aaron Cromer. The prodigal son returns to the Buffalo Bills. Now, there's a lot of fans who might remember Cromer for his time here in Buffalo back in 2015-2016. God, Chris, that was the infancy of this podcast. That was our first years as podcasters. He was the offensive line coach whose arrival, alongside acquisitions of LaShawn McCoy and Richie Incognito, vaulted the Bills into the upper echelon of the NFL in terms of rushing and run blocking. They finished in the top 15 for pass blocking that first year in 2015 after Doug Marone's squad was 22nd the previous year. They finished in the top five for run blocking after Marone's 2014 squad finished 29th in the league. And the only changes they made was they added a rookie in John Miller and they signed Richie Incognito. That's it. Oh, I mean, they got McCoy, who obviously helps, but... You can see how just taking all that out of the equation, your blocking metrics ridiculously improved. Why? Because you added one guy who taught these guys a better way to play football. Helped them hone parts of their game that were significantly lacking before that. I mean, one of the things, although I'd be remiss if I didn't state, the other thing that fans might remember Cromer for was his six-game suspension for fighting some kids over beach chairs. (laughs) Chris. That was a, those are some dark days. We actually got in a little bit of trouble for talking about that on the podcast. I remember some angry DMs, a couple emails talking about it's not funny to joke about this. First of all, at the time, I think I apologized. No, nah, 
I no no. I I've genu- never heard you apologize on this podcast or I know or about anything. Oh, you having to apologize to your wife for anything? No, I don't. Well, I only. I, it's like I explained to my wife. I apologize for things that I'm genuinely sorry for. If things are going to continue happening, I'm not going to say I'm sorry because that just makes me a liar, right? It devalues what my I'm sorry's are worth. If I just apologize for every little thing under the sun that hurt your feelings. Sometimes if I say or do something and it's hurtful or it's aggravating or it's an, it's like, look, I'm sorry that this thing I'm doing made you feel that way. But also, <laughs> if I just say I'm sorry to everything that's inconvenient to everyone else, it devalues what my apologies are actually worth. If I said, if I gave you a heartfelt I'm sorry about something, Chris. I wouldn't accept it. <laughs> Oh, that's what I love about you. That's what I appreciate about you, Chris. Yeah. Don't apologize to You're me. You're garbage just like me. But so now we made we made jokes at the, about the Aaron Cromer situation, and we got our hands slapped for it, and I, I will never forget that as a podcaster. But let's be honest. Anybody who's ever gone to a strip mall for more than 45 minutes, tell me that in your heart of hearts, there hasn't been a day when you're walking through a situation like that and you don't see something that just makes you think, even just think in your head, God, I would kill for a children of the corn situation right now. Just just, just so it could be labeled as self-defense. Because I'm kidding, obviously. Violence towards, violence towards minors is not acceptable. It's a felony for a reason. But Jesus Christ. Like, what? Tell me. Chris, I, I was in high school. We were walking through the food court, and I saw a guy walking with his son who was about our age. He was probably about 15. We were probably 14, 15 at the McKinley Mall in Hamburg, New York. And this kid is walking, cussing his father out because he didn't buy him something he wanted from him. This is how old I am. Electronics Boutique. Do you remember when that was like the big store? Yeah, EB Games. Yeah. So he's cussing his father out. And we're all just dumbfounded, staring at him, just watching him walk past. And finally, I just waved at the guy. And he looked at me and I go, do you want me to hit him for you? Like, is that what this is? <laughs> like, do you, do you want me to do it? Because this is wild. Maybe he's just a beta father. I, I don't know. But I bet all, now he's divorced. All I can say is that Aaron Cromer, great NFL coach, runs a little hot. Okay, And since the tweets have been flying around, I've seen some YouTube comments on some videos about him and his coaching style. People who know Aaron Cromer away from football, they can attest to the fact that he runs a little hot. But Chris, I kind of like that, don't you? Yeah. I want that in the guys who are coaching football for my football team. You can't all be Boy Scouts. Cromer is an offensive line coach who, unlike Joe Brady, has a pretty absurd resume. And a significant track record of NFL success in multiple cities, and even more important, in multiple systems across the NFL. He can run zone-based systems, gap-based systems. He can run with power. He can run pin-and-pull rushing attacks. There's a, a multitude of things that he can do. And as you can imagine from what we know about his personal demeanor, he coaches his players to play with a little bit of an edge. And for people who doubt it, Eric Wood, okay, I'm looking at it right now. Eric Wood was not known. I mean, he was a good center from pretty much from the time we drafted him. He was a good NFL center. Yeah, probably the best center we've had since Kent Hull. Okay. He wasn't known as a pulling center. He wasn't known as a as a as an athletic blocker. Aaron Cromer showed up and all of a sudden him and Richie Incognito are running 
pin and pull rushing where they're both getting. You're getting a center and a guard on the edge of formations, and you're springing LaShawn McCoy for huge gains. You're carrying our offense through the rushing attack by getting guys who you didn't see this level of athleticism from previously, just based on a change of philosophy and a little bit of technique tweaking. They were disgusting together. And since the announcement, Eric Woods come out and pretty much applauded the signing, just look, pointing to his own personal experience with the man and saying, look, this guy was a great coach and we did some of our best blocking with him coaching us. That's a ringing endorsement that I, I don't know what else I need to hear. Do you? I don't need to hear anything else. Okay. He's been here. I know what he's about. I was excited about the hire. And I know that the guys over at Cover One have a whole film room episode devoted to Joe Brady and Ken Dorsey, right? Yep. I started listening to it here and there. I, I don't have a ton of downtime during the day between comedy podcasts. And I, I don't listen to a lot of sports podcasts in my off time. But if you're interested in film room stuff and you really want to get into the nuts and bolts of how both of these guys operate, go check that out because it is eye-opening. Cromer Essentially, weren't we all pounding the table saying Bobby Johnson needed to go? Towards the end of the season when things really started to get ugly and you're like, why can't we run block better? Yeah, it uh, wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have missed him if he had left. So Aaron Cromer just seems to be the cure for what ails us in that regard. I, I don't know. I just in fact, Eric Turner makes the point when I was listening to their podcast he made John Mills look like an NFL caliber guard. And he essentially, you're talking about a player that disappeared from the NFL landscape the second that he took off the Buffalo Bills uniform. So I can only imagine what he and his mindset and his coaching acumen in terms of teaching technique and his physical brand of offensive line play that still involves aggression, even when plays are finesse-based. <laughs> when you're talking about zone blocking, rather than just downhill smash-mouth concepts, what he could do with an offensive line that has the athletes that ours does. You get Deion Dawkins, Spencer Brown, Tommy Doyle, uh, Rick Bates, some other big guys who can play with, who can, I think, play with a, a little bit of sandpaper when the situation's called for it. Spencer Brown in particular. The biggest boon and the final point I want to make, and the biggest reason that I think the Buffalo Bills came out of this shuffling of personnel in a significantly better position than anybody else in our division. The Bills are, in fact, bringing in new faces in important positions. Offensive coordinator, quarterback, offensive line coach, special teams coordinators. There will be differences in the way we execute certain things situationally. But the Bills roster, as it's presently constructed, even without offseason additions, already has a baseline of talent that doesn't need to be molded. It doesn't need to be changed to fit what any of these coaches want to accomplish. Instead, they're going to join our staff and attempt to blend their coaching styles with our talent and just kind of mix in the educational perspective of what they bring to the table and what they can teach our players and hope to elevate their games within the structure of the offense that already exists. And you're doing it to a group of players that have had time and had reps together and ultimately gotten to proven that they can be effective as a group. We don't have to do any significant roster construction to fit these coaches in and not just maintain previous levels of productivity. And in some cases, like Cromer, you might actually improve even if you add nothing to what's already here. 
We're the only team in the AFCs that can say that. The Patriots, they don't even know who's going to be calling their plays. Who's going to be coaching up their young running back stable to accomplish what this unknown offensive coordinating entity might want to call? Or who's going to be guiding the development of their young, hopefully franchise quarterback? Because what comes of his skill set, that's not something I'd feel all that great about after watching the way the Patriots season ended, after watching the way he played in the wild card game, and after watching him at that skill, Chris, the skills competition at the Pro Bowl. Didn't watch it. I watched zero of the Pro Bowl, but the Patriots Twitter handle thought it would be a good idea to put out the video of him in the skills competition in the precision passing contest. Russell Wilson scored 22 points. Mac Jones scored nine. The gap there between elite quarterback and what Mac Jones is today is pretty big. And then the Dolphins, on the other hand, who are going to have a strong offensive mind running the show, but have to be able to give him some of the ingredients that his brand of cooking sticks, that it actually works, which is something that they've struggled with as a franchise for the better part of a decade. I... I think when you size it up like that, the Buffalo Bills are still in great shape to continue, I don't want to say lording over the AFC East, but are at least in the driver's seat going forward, wouldn't you? Yeah. What, do you need a nap? Yeah. I'm on four hours of sleep, dude. I got off work at 7 a.m., took a nap, woke up, caught some audio. You know what you need to do? Went and said hello to my lady. You need to refill your... yeah. What you need to do is go refill your glass. And so with that, folks, we got to get out of here. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And this has been your AFC's Roundup. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.